Actions, Responses to Trafficking, the podcast that shines a spotlight on new and established trafficking responses in the UK and beyond. Welcome back to Actions. Today, I'm speaking with Rosie Riley, who is the founder and the CEO of Vita, has been delivering training for healthcare professionals and is a doctor working between emergency and general practice based in Somerset. Rosie's been involved in the modern slavery sector for a long time in putting to the Modern Slavery Act statutory guidance, is a core member of the NHS England Modern Slavery Network and the Home Office Modern Slavery Strategy and Implementation Victim Support Group. Hi, Rosie. Thanks for coming on the Actions podcast. Hi, nice to to see you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. It's great to have you here. Could we start maybe with a little introduction to you? Can you tell us more about your journey to this area of modern slavery and human trafficking? Yeah, um, it's it's a long story, so I'll try and keep it brief. But essentially, I I, um, started finding out about this world of modern slavery when I was actually halfway through my medical school training in Bristol. So around 2013, um, and it was in response to watching a, a Channel 4 unreported world documentary series. And one of the episodes was on an orphanage that I actually stayed in for a month. And um, okay. it actually, through that 30 minute episode, the whole thing was about that specific orphanage in Kathmandu, Nepal, and how they right. were trafficking the children. Um so it started really with a quite a personal connection where I felt very much almost part of this system of abuse and exploitation of these children, very specifically where I knew exactly who these kids were. My goodness. Um, and so that sort of responding to that and trying to process that, I think that um, I, I was looking into actually what, what, how I could impact somewhere around me. And I, I looked into, um, well, I thought, well, I'm going to be, become a doctor one day. Um, and um, I started asking some questions of doctors and nurses around me as to, do you know what this is, this form of exploitation? Have you heard of human trafficking? Do you see victims and survivors in, in your health settings? And um, generally found that um, people were saying, well, I've, there are some real unusual trends. There are some red flags that I'm seeing. And I I have absolutely no idea what it means or what to do about it. So I put together a training package um, with the support of some um, and, um, colleagues in the anti-trafficking sector. And um, I started delivering this training to some general practices around Bristol. Um, the demand was enormous. So there were some there were some se- uh, surgeries who were actually specialists in sexual health, assault mm-hmm. and um, support services and things for victims of domestic abuse and other forms of abuse. But actually, I, I was still shocked to, to feel that there, there was still that real need for the information that we were we were talking about. Yeah. Um, and so this was way back in the training, which I just continued to deliver the training wherever there was demand. Um, and that sort of was the beginning of the life of Vita. Um, over the years, um, more and more um, health professionals have come on board um, the team. And it's actually become structured into this in, into this training program that we mm-hmm. um, that we've just delivered now to more than two thousand health professionals across the UK, um, and it's commissioned by NHS trusts, um, departments, teams, individuals. Um, I mean, our aim with the training. I'm as I, I'm a doctor in the a, in A and E at the moment, and mm-hmm. um, I'm I'm going to be a GP in a few years' time. 
And one of my biggest bugbears from any safeguarding training is that we we get a lot of information about red flags and we get a lot of information about how to escalate our concerns. And we get absolutely no information whatsoever on how to be when your patient is sitting in front of you. Like, how do you interact with your patient? How do you create that safe, confidential space? How do you apply what's called trauma-informed care? Um, And so the aim of the training is actually to meet that gap that, um, you know, with, I guess it's been sculpted by health professionals like me who know exactly what it's like to sit in the middle of A&E and you've got a seven sometimes more these days hour wait to see the next patient and you've got some somebody where you're concerned and there are enough red flags there you don't know if they're trafficked you don't know if they're experiencing domestic abuse but actually there's enough red flags there and then what do you do how yeah. do you remove an accompanying person from the room without raising their alarm or suspicions That's, yeah absolutely I'm so glad you mentioned that bugbear because it's it's exactly my bugbear as well and I've <laughs> always felt this that we do we give so much information about what is trafficking what are the signs how important it is to report and intervene but actually the tools of exactly that if you've got somebody in the room with them how do you delicately remove that person how do you open a conversation without because there's so many people worried about re-traumatizing saying the wrong thing making Mm. somebody completely shut down so yeah so it's great that this training provides those skills so it's it's, it is it quite um practical in terms of the way people then can apply their learning it's so practical that um we have many many testimonials from doctors and nurses and other health professionals saying that I I can literally go back to the ward now and apply these skills Um, because it's sort of phrases to use and you know how to start building a rapport with someone who might be rightly incredibly uh, lacking any trust in you Um, and also I think a lot of what what is helpful from our training that we provide is not only the clues to uh, to spot the signs but also suggestions and behavior and ways people people respond to trauma in general Um, so not just um, we're not just looking for that grateful victim someone who's Mm. willing and responsive to offers of help and and really happy to sort of listen to you and trust you and build a rapport with you and trust that that actually isn't how human beings necessarily behave when they're experiencing trauma and surviving um and so we we can apply our our science lens here and our our medical understanding really of trauma science and how how our bodies and minds and and our brain actually adapts to protect you from harm. And so why would somebody trust me? It's actually Mm. incredibly appropriate that they don't trust me because perhaps traffickers have sculpted this lack of trust in any sort of professional that they encounter, or that is actually their past experience. And so where actually it's appropriate that they may not necessarily be withdrawn or not engaging, but actually Mm -hmm. maybe more aggressive or more likely to run and abscond we call in the the sort of health sector right how how do you recognize those signs and then how do you use those skills that we have to de-escalate and create that safe confidential space without forcing disclosure because they still won't necessarily feel safe to share what's going on with you so the aim is actually to readjust I'm not necessarily trying to change the way that victims respond to us and mm-hmm. make them feel safe with me. I'm actually yeah. trying to change me <laughs> um, and, and actually go, well, I, 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 my role isn't to be a brave savior doctor. 
Um, but actually, it's to look at what another type of positive outcome might be. And that would be something like planting those seeds that suggest you're an individual worthy of dignity and care. And when you're ready, this is a safe place and right. safe people. And this is a seed planting exercise. And mm-hmm. I'm not trying to identify forced disclosure. Um, and, and actually, it's almost like this is a protected environment where somebody's in control. Mm-hmm. This may be the only protected environment where yeah. somebody really feels control. And it's almost like that, in a sense, is seed planting. This is what having control of this room feels like. Right. That's good. And you're in yeah. control. I'm not going to force you to do anything you don't want to do. Yeah. Um, so we, we're teaching doctors how to do these things and nurses how to do these things. That's excellent. And so then it's really encouraging people that if they do or are ready eventually to come forward and access support, that is the place where they can come because they've, you know, exactly like you've said, you've planted that seed. They know that's a resource that's available to them. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's not, um, it, it, we're quite realistic with the health professionals we train. You're not going to undo the power of perhaps juju, even mm. spiritual control over people yeah. who've been trafficked using that form of co- coercion and control. Yeah. You're not going to do that in one consultation. I mean, why Why are we mentally sort of trying to undo that in one consultation? Yeah. Yeah. You're simply seed planting and letting people know this is a safe place. And actually when it's right for them, they have more control of what's happening to them. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately if I go in and I'm wanting my agenda to rescue and get people out and get people out then then to them they're someone is forcing coercing and manipulating me to do something I don't want to do so who am I to them other than maybe another form of abuser yeah that's true And, and I think it is important that practitioners and professionals working with with potential survivors recognize the ability to sort of mirror the control and the conditions that people are in when they're being trafficked and exploited can mm-hmm. sometimes be ways that that we end up engaging with people as well. And we have to really reflect and change that behavior in ourselves. Yeah, too. yeah absolutely. Um, and with the healthcare professionals that are learning about this, how compatible is this with other things that they're doing? Because I'm just aware that they're probably trying to look for a lot of concerns, a lot of safeguarding concerns as part of their work. Do they feel like this is yet another thing or, or is there a compatibility that actually the skills cut across a whole range of other issues? Well, well, this is sort of the beauty of what we're trying to do because I, because it's written by health professionals, we're very aware that we don't want any more training that is of no use. Um, and the the last thing I need is to be told a lot of information by someone who has a lot of expertise on something where actually I have no idea how I would apply this to my clinical practice or know what to do differently at all. So um, I think that the, the main outcome is, I mean, we're really clear with the health professionals that you won't know what is going on and you're very unlikely to know what is going on. They're really unlikely to disclose anything to you because you're a stranger in quite in your own comfort zone environment. My health service is my comfort zone, not theirs. Um, and um, and there's that fear and there's that threat response and all of this going on. So it's very unlikely unless I have that um, longer term relationship with somebody to to necessarily have that trust in that one consultation. So. I don't know somebody's going to be experiencing trafficking or um, domestic abuse or any form of um, exploitation. So we're not there to let equip them in how to identify solely victims of modern slavery and human trafficking. We're there to actually um, equip them with the safeguarding skills that they need for anyone who may be experiencing any form of trauma 
or um, safeguarding concern. So the skills of, for example, learning how to and practicing um, how to remove an accompanying person from the room and the language that you can use um, is applicable for anyone. And a lot of the time we tell them to practice these skills when there isn't a safeguard, when they're not, they don't have that gut instinct that's a bit of an unusual I'm a bit twitchy about this situation. So we tell them to practice these skills when they aren't worried. And there's just two people that you're like, well, this sounds all very normal. And I wouldn't have thought there was any kind of safety issue underneath it all. Um, And that way you have the language, it's natural, it's fluent and it's routine. And, um, you know, when you do come across a patient where you're, where they've got an accompanying person and, um, you're like, oh my gosh, this is it. Oh my goodness, I, I'm really, there are so many red flags already and I need to get this person out of the room. You, you, you're just, you're rehearsed in it. It's just routine. And then actually you're much more likely to create almost a bit of a rapport with a potential perpetrator in that way um, so that they don't feel so threatened and are less likely to want to whiz off or um, never bring someone back to this health service or are more likely to leave the room to, to start with anyway. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it sounds really positive on, on all fronts. What's the kind of feedback you're getting from practitioners that have done this? Have they been able to apply this learning? Has it been successful for them? Um, well, yeah, oh, I, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm obviously going to say that. I, I wish you could hear from some of the clinicians. Um, we have we have nearly a thousand pieces of pre and post course self assessment um, of knowledge and confidence, and it's a fairly crude way of assessing. So mm-hmm. before they fill out their sort of scores on different categories of how confident they feel on ten point scale, and then they fill it out afterwards. And I mean, crudely, the the biggest impact that 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 they have is in those consultation trauma informed applied trauma-informed consultation skills and yeah so identifying I mean I I don't think without equipping health professionals with the consultation skills that we should be focusing so much on spotting the signs and identifying mm-hmm. because actually yeah. there's so much potential for harm here yeah. um, and train the wrong people to do the wrong things as well is something I'm really passionate about um you know it's not appropriate for um other staff who don't have these conversations to know yeah. this information so we're not actually inviting other staff perhaps who 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 wouldn't have consultations with patients mm-hmm. to do this training it's not appropriate because th- their role is actually more to spot the signs and escalate to the person who might be having this conversation yeah um I think I've yeah. um, gone off your question there but no anyway. <laughs> no it's exactly no but it's exactly that it's about how useful it is and I I definitely appreciate you referencing also the the appropriate roles and and we often you know I have these conversations a lot as well about the right person to be trained because we can we need to manage people's expectations about how involved they can be and when it's appropriate to open these conversations because of that potential to do harm so it's great that's being recognized in this training as well a hundred percent there's there's enormous potential to do harm and we're not um, I'm not saying that necessarily with the um the way that we're delivering this training to the health professionals the the harm is actually in the um I need to go in and I need to help someone I need to get someone out and I need to get the police involved here and I need to uh, when you don't understand the context of what that might do yeah I mean we've got we've got even the 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 national referral mechanism on in the background um and uh, you know as well as as well as any of us that Mm -hmm. this is becoming 
more horrendously hostile and dehumanizing than ever. Um, and so we're where I'm saying, well, hang on, even, for example, Albanian men being singled out, Albanians in general being singled out in the moment by government as well, they're yeah. never victims of anything kind of thing, get them back to Albania. Well, hang on, if I've got an Albanian um, chap in front of me where I'm, you know, they're disclosing that, you know, there's some forced labor going on in the background and I want to identify and escalate. I know there's an enormous risk that they wouldn't be listened to compared to, say, I don't know, non, not an Albanian. So, yeah, I mean, there's, right. there's enormous impact and potential yeah. harm simply from our government response. So yeah. we have to understand that context if, you know, trying to break that savior mentality it's re- it's a yeah. big important step i think yeah that's exactly right and it's really refreshing to hear and and it's true and it, and it's part of when we do intervene we do need to have a sense of the bigger picture and the ramifications for different groups and actually for somebody who's undocumented potentially there's more harm to happen to them if they're not going to be believed if they're going to be treated as an undocumented person as opposed to a survivor of trafficking um and you're right you do need to understand enough of the national referral mechanism and the sector um, Mm -hmm. to be able to convey that information appropriately so that people can make informed choices about what their next steps are as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, on another level as well, we've got um, a survivor leadership and survivor advocacy within our Mm -hmm. group where they can actually review our materials and um, have been reviewed our materials before sort of early stages. And I think that it's, it's ensuring where where we're creating that safe confidential space we're not missing key important bits that actually would have made a a real impact okay so that's really interesting so you've included survivors and what they would have wished for during these kinds of encounters with medical professionals um so so we have survivor leaders in the leadership team who've reviewed the training materials mainly just to say actually this is this is in line with what I think would be helping to create a safe confidential environment um but also helpful for as a barometer of i i still wouldn't have felt safe or trusted perhaps and 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 again not using that one survivor or to to be the voice of all survivors but it's it's helpful to hear from from those with lived experience that this this is it's it's about that seed planting and that's Mm. that's the important thing that we're trained break that that savior mentality and plant those seeds and and then that creates that um that awareness that I remember that person that treated me with dignity and and I was in control whether that's Mm. a a sort of a a, a, yeah whether that's something that they're able to put words to or not it it, it does make a massive impact Mm. I think Mm, absolutely and so it's really clear that this training is useful for practitioners um to do exactly like you've said just to plant those seeds to to create a potential environment where people might be able to disclose or come for help in the future does the same training also provide skills for people who are already identified survivors of trafficking and the way medical practitioners can can support them after they'd already been identified as survivors that's that's a really good um, question. The training that we're delivering to um, sort of broadly doesn't as much. So there's a small amount of when you have somebody who is in the NRM process mm-hmm. already or out the other side or not in the NRM, but is out of their trafficking yep. um, experience. So we talk about re-traumatization and not 
not digging into any trauma that is not going to change your medical plan so that we don't Uh actually need to know about what's happened to somebody. And that's actually very re-traumatizing unless it's medically relevant. And even then you ask permission to know that information. Um, We don't necessarily train, for example, if you have a GP who's looking after survivors and the the next layer of trick, we've got, we've got big plans in terms of where we're going next. And um, some of our, um, some of our Vita network members, for example, and our and our Vita team are, are work within the Helen Bamba Foundation and have a lot of um, experience working with survivors there. So we'll we'll be hopefully creating new training packages for that longer term medical health support. Um, one of the areas where we're actually going into at the moment, we're working with the physician response unit in in the Royal London, and they're they they're they're like the land version of the helicopter team so um they go out to do really serious trauma responses but they they essentially bring the emergency department to the community um and so we are we're developing training and we've had a big round table before christmas to look at what what we need to do in a community setting because health professionals go out into people's homes and that might be a health system midwife might be a, an emergency response to a 999 call and actually when you spot signs in somebody's home we're now developing training and a pathway of what to do when it not when it's like there are children there's obvious abuse we need the police involved this is an unsafe situation but the gray unsure oh oh, I felt a bit weird about that I don't know what do I do how do I because there might be some information sharing that might be quite important okay so that's That's our that's our next era (laughs) that's brilliant so really big plans for for new training and clearly really you've got a, a finger on the pulse of of what needs people practitioners have medical practitioners have in this field and the sorts of areas that they're in and the Mm -hmm. kind of support they need yeah and I I mean we're piloting this in March so it's really on in the full swing we're creating a new um video as part of our training because we use lots of different multimedia in our training so that it's actually sort of educationally um engaging um Mm -hmm. and so a new video we're going to be filming very soon for that and piloting it with the new team in March so that will be exciting very exciting. Oh, good luck with that. That sounds really, really valuable. Thanks for sharing. Um, and you've just mentioned actually the Vita network. This might be a nice moment to introduce what that network is and, and tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, sure. Um, so in, I think it was towards the end of uh, 2019, um, a few of us within the anti-trafficking sector were saying, well, actually it'd be useful to have a network where we um, connect as individuals um, looking at the health response and the public health response to human trafficking and exploitation, because there's lots of sort of siloed work going on all over the show. And unless you know somebody, then you wouldn't know what work they're doing. And it's actually incredibly isolating. You feel like you're the only one who is looking into this and, um, and you just feel very lonely in this world. So we, we, um, there are a few of us we decided um, actually Vita would be quite a useful platform to use. So we created the Vita network um, and so it's the aim is to connect individuals from various um, various sort of backgrounds, but actually all focusing on the health response, um, person-centered health response to modern slavery, human trafficking, um, to then equip each other through sharing of knowledge, skills and resources, and then to um, mobilize that information to, um, to not just have that information shared, but actually look at how we can apply that within our different workforces. Um, whether that's actually more a social work context or a, an A&E or a, you know, a GP setting or wherever. 
we may be and um that's so we we had our first meeting end of 2019 little did we know we were about to have covid and all of that we did have to have a big pause because most of us were health professionals so we had to kind of full whack into the health setting for 2020 early 2020 anyway um but it's been amazing since, and we, it's grown. Um, our network, um, the 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 kind of group that run it, the Network Advisory co- Council, and that's made up of um, health professionals, academics. So we've got dentist lead, we've got um, survivor lead, um, or a consultant by lived experience. We've got mm-hmm. um, various different health professionals from different backgrounds, medical students, nursing students, um, and we run we run what essentially is our our network. Um, and it's we've had blogs we have monthly blogs okay. um, monthly newsletters um we're looking actually to start a podcast soon um, oh, brilliant. and we've had some webinars as well where we host webinars and invite um you could be a health professional with no idea about vita or any training or anything like that or mm-hmm. you could be sort of quite active in the anti-trafficking sector but sort of we've had lots of um engagements from from various individuals there that's great. And it must be really reassuring for people to have colleagues sort of from the same sector to be able to bounce ideas off or get support or get advice that's more appropriate yes. to your sector as opposed to um, sectors that might not necessarily have the same needs or gaps or issues. Yeah, absolutely. And it allows us it allows us to feed into each other's work as well. So you've got that kind of benefit of collective knowledge, collective mm-hmm. experience. And so where, for example, we've got um, Jordan, who is our... Um, blog coordinator he's a medical student so he'll be qualifying as a doctor in not too long but he's actually put a motion to walk to the bma the Brit- uh, the british medical association um okay. to, to recognize modern slavery as a health threat and so he's done that after um being with us and then we've got um our t- two of our the pediatricians in the team um dr laura wood and dr sarah boutros who um in 2022 have just published um with the royal college of pediatric and child health the new modern slave the new guidelines on child trafficking and what to do as a as a pediatrician and a and a health professional who works with children so we've got we're, we're writing national guidance for the royal colleges and um we we hope to be doing that in not too long we've been invited to write for the royal college of emergency medicine so for all emergency med- medicine practitioners will will be writing the guidance and so it provides that um that platform really where we go actually this person is better to speak for this issue this person's better to speak for this issue and we can review all these things wrestle with some difficult concepts and then actually um we're very solution orientated we want applied output we don't want just a a moan party (laughs) Mm. because it can be quite difficult with some of the policy and the national and the the sort of narrative that's being painted with fighting a sort of difficult battle there definitely and I'm sure there's there's value in having a moan party every now and again just as as an event (laughs) as a tool totally to cope with the situation but yeah that sounds really really valuable um and what's some of the the reflections or learning that you're sort of generating from creating this network, from delivering your training? Um, is there other things that you could share with the listeners from what you're yeah. kind of reflecting? I, I'm, I'm finding um, just to sort of um, watch the network um, grow. I'm finding there, there are two things. I'll try and remember both before I forget. Yeah. Um, the first <laughs> is that it's got teeth. Um, it's it's actually actioning what we're talking about so that makes people feel like they're contributing well this is this is a network where there is real output for what we're Mm -hmm. we're talking about so it's not just 
meetings that sort of don't set, tend to go anywhere. Yeah. So there are real tangible things that we're watching and we're seeing happen from what we're discussing. Um, and then I said I wasn't going to forget the other one. <laughs> yes, no, I remember it now. So the the other thing that I'm I'm aware of is seeing how people are growing in their confidence from being supported in this environment. One of the one of the things that myself and some of the, the other leadership within Vita um, are very conscious of is to not um, sacrifice ourselves in this process in the in the campaign to um, uphold and, and change systems. Um, we're very aware that actually we need to recognise our own responses to trauma. Um, being very aware that vicarious trauma can really impact our own health and well-being. Um, and also that um, almost we get we, we we need to look at what freedom looks like if that's really what what the sort of goal is for individuals and 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 what what does that mean for us as well so so we're looking at a sort of a holistic of looking after ourselves looking after others and 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 then that creates this really less like a hamster wheel of never ending struggle <laughs> um, and work and more and more and more so very conscious of right let's not react to that there might be extreme pressure for for example the anti-trafficking sector to respond to this really difficult home office policy that's just come out and we're we trying to be le- less reactive and take step back con- consciously and go well actually we're sort of on our knees from a health perspective so perhaps mm-hmm. we just need to take a bit of time to respond here or yeah I don't know it's not not given very concise we're very we're yeah. just conscious of creating a healthy yeah. supportive environment for everybody absolutely yeah and that's really good to hear because you're right I mean the sector can feel very um very fast-paced at times so, so sometimes long periods of silence and then you know huge moments where big announcements happen it feels very much like we have to get we get pulled into responding and having to have a a stance on this or a position on this because of the nature of the way that policies get announced and and the way that guidances get updated and you're right I think it is important and really healthy for us to remember to just sometimes just take a step back and not necessarily be swept away with that tide um so that's really good to hear Um, and it's also great to hear that people feel like there's actual concrete outputs happening through the network because I imagine everybody's so incredibly busy so to even justify the the time spent being involved actually seeing outputs as a result is really helpful and incentivizing as well absolutely and I mean an example of that is our is our safe refuge response to the war in Ukraine right and we were we sort of taking a step back from lots of things we're very also aware of when we need to write we need to absolutely act here this is this needs a a voice from trauma you know this is Mm -hmm. a very immediate trauma that's happening and how do we bring our our health expertise here to look at the vulnerabilities that might lead leave people vulnerable to trafficking and exploitation and so we we rallied and we worked long into the night and we had our you know a whole group pulled together safe refuge kind of resource pack from a host welcome pack for hosts to um, information for asylum seekers who um, need a bit of translated health information and where we we haven't recreate the will we try to look, identify for example doctors of the world have incredible translated health information like what, how do you understand the NHS and things like that but also when we met um, we, we have um, 
last year um, three new um, midwifery colleagues who've joined our Vita network and so we've got a professor a, a professor associate professor and a midwife who's got a lot of expertise in modern slavery and as soon as they um, arrived they were able to input directly into this and essentially when we were speaking with the anti-trafficking and refugee sector um, at the to provide some sort of national response their input was immediately feeding into what we were saying to 400 NGOs. So it was, it was, there's real, it's a platform that we, that, that the network has created. And, and I think it's not, it's not for me to speak at all. It's literally to create this platform because the people around me are the experts and they are, they have so much wisdom and so much knowledge there. And, and it's just like, right, where do we target? What, what do we need to, so there's, there's a bit of strategy in the background but um, yeah, th- that's just an example. Yeah, and it sounds like a really vibrant network then. So people are able and enabled to get involved as and how they can and, and on the issues that they're seeing and actually develop responses to. So that is incredibly empowering for professionals that must feel so um, disempowered so much of the time because so much is beyond their control and they're kind of within a system that they can't really create huge amounts of change within right yeah it can feel like treacle the nhs especially now yeah (laughs) no exactly you're sort of swept in this sort of machine that's not doing particularly well at the moment but yeah yeah yeah, that must be incredibly tiring for everybody to be to be part of and to be part of every day as well working life yes Um, yeah um Rosie you mentioned in terms of the approach of the network um and the training a public health approach Mm -hmm. um and we hear that referenced a lot in the sector um and it would be great to just hear a little bit more about um what that means in the context of modern slavery responses um and specifically for healthcare professionals absolutely so um we we take a public health approach um to our health response. So mm-hmm. um, where I, I'm not a public health expert, um, I can apply pl- public health principles as a health professional with an individual in front of me. Right. So essentially, we've got we've got Liz Such, who is a public health um, expert and academic who is part of our network. And she's, right. she's very involved in the national lead, leading the national public health approach and what that means. Um, and I think she'd be excellent to interview as well I don't know if she's, she'd allow me to say that but um great yeah <laughs> I think um she so have taking a lot of um understanding of public health approaches essentially looking at um the upstream reasons that leave people vulnerable to exploitation so um the way that she um phrased it and uh, the way that I've sort of kind of con- conceptualized it really is you've got the primary secondary and tertiary prevention response Primary is preventing it. So, um, you know, tackling poverty and those really upstream, you know, causes that drive the machine that might be exploitation. So preventing that and tackling those social determinants almost. Um, There might be smaller ones, like, for example, looking at abuse within a family and actually supporting families where actually that person that may be, you know, those sorts of examples. You might have secondary prevention, which I've which I sort of see as intervention. So, for example, if you've got a a, a lady, a patient who's pregnant and identifying them as um, potentially vulnerable and intervening, that intervention is actually secondary prevention, preventing further harm. And also that 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 person's a mum. So the trauma her body is experiencing may also impact the growth and development of her 
fetus um who um and and that impacts on you know perhaps whether that um that behavior survival mechanisms that she's needing to survive that um trauma um that that has real legacy perhaps with her her child or even the health of that pregnancy in general whether that will continue to the pregnancy will continue to term so um there's real intervention that prevents further harm and we need to think about that transgenerational impact of trauma you're not even if you're even if somebody is 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 there's intervention that can stop trafficking that that prevention of further harm that can it's how do we interrupt that cycle of um transgenerational trauma and then tertiary is 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 more looking at um care of a survivor um, and that um equipping them with or, or supporting their empowerment so that there isn't that future risk of trafficking again once they've already been exploited so that's sort of how I I I think Mm -hmm. about prevention intervention and then person-centered survivor care as primary secondary and tertiary public health and I'm sure that public health academics would would be much more eloquent than me but um, a lot of what I try and do when or, or, or our colleagues try and do is look at well what does this mean in a real life setting with real mm-hmm. patients in front of me? So um, my colleague, Laura, um, who's a pediatrician and I, we, 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 we've created something called the social medicine zoom. So okay. when you have a, a patient in front of you, you look at that human being. So what is that, the health of that person in front of me? So there may be, um, you know, for example, a case there, if, a county lines case I saw, we would use as an example, we've got a child, you've got that, the, overdose that might have happened you've got the mental health impact all the health the physical health and the mental health of that person right and then you zoom out a little you go well look at their family how is that family unit impacting on that person's health because I can treat them physically they're going back to a really really dysfunctional and quite potentially dangerous family unit mm-hmm. right what about the context of the community that that person's in there's actually a potentially very broken relationship between kids and the police mm-hmm. um or they're on the peripheries of school and the school concept isn't very protective from da, da, da. And then you think about, well, actually regionally, there's a lot of county lines activity, particularly in this area. And this is actually what it looks like. And then nationally, you look at, well, policy, what does policy do to sort of isolate kids or, you know, so you, you zoom and then you can zoom back in to that one right. in front of you and go, right, well, I have this better contextual awareness of, the social impact of that, you know, they're not just an isolated island of a person, but now I might understand why it's actually really difficult to say to, to sort of target the drug addiction or whatever it is because of and There's so wider not, contextual, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm trying. This is big training that we've we've written for Health Education England. So I'm I'm trying to summarize it. So probably not very well, but <laughs> no, that's so so clear and. Re- the way that you've just spelled that out actually just makes so much sense. And I'm sure that's really helpful for practitioners who are in that situation at that moment in time, who might feel very frustrated by, you know, repeat, you know, people potentially needing to access services again and again for the same kind of recurrent issues, but kind of understanding mm-hmm. the context or the situation or, or, or the family environment or the societal conditions that they're in kind of yeah. helps them to understand the person that's presenting in front of them. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we're also very aware that we're trying not to make it feel like it's your responsibility to sort yeah, all of that. Right. Um, so it's more just an awareness of that. So that when I say 
I don't know, somebody has hepatitis, for example, but they're ho- and they're homeless. Um, well, why would uh, uh, getting them to a clinic in the hospital, of course, of course, that you know their their life might be quite chaotic for various reasons, and actually, what they won't re- receive the letter from the hospital. I've got, you've got to think yeah. about all these different things yeah. of. Um, so, so it's just how how do we adapt health services to create that safe environment that actually could be person centered and actually tackles the things that need to be tackled and, mm-hmm. and an awareness of what is actually broader health and that's where we go. Well, actually, health professionals can then speak it at our regional platforms and they perhaps need to change the way that the hospital responds to this and then actually well nationally will we need to readjust how we understand trauma and how we yeah. how we respond to trauma and and some of the health policies that the the national policies that come out mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so um there's a voice for health at every layer that we're trying to sort of learn what a health voice looks like yeah yeah and find find feet for that I guess and yeah and that is really interesting because I guess we often, you know, think about health support as that kind of that tertiary stage, that intervention once it's passed and once it's become sort of at that level, whereas actually all that upstream things that you've just mentioned um, Mm -hmm. and the context that somebody is in is so important to have understood and leveraged so that we we can understand and address those issues. Yeah. Exactly like you've said, further upstream as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, it's interesting when we're at these platforms at these national meetings or whatever, and, and sort mm. of we're turned to for the like, do we think we need therapy here or whatever? And because that's, or the, there's a bump and a bruise, like, where would they go to A&E for this? And, and that, and then we can go, well, actually, don't, don't even think about going near trauma psychotherapy when they are in an NRM system where they have to wait years and essentially what is prolonged poverty states. Yeah. And how does poverty impact you on your mind and your sense of well-being where any day you could hear from the home office that you might be, you might not get your conclusive grounds decision, yeah. you might be deported. Yeah. And so you're you're in a state of waiting for potentially terrifying decision for years and in, in the state of poverty where you're only getting a small amount of money per week, you're not allowed to work or, or have an education. Um, and that's that's bad for health. So, so yeah. we can say, well, actually, this this is this is not conducive to good health outcomes so don't go anywhere near a trauma um psychotherapy sort of solution when they're not in a safe Mm -hmm. you know that they're in a current threat state quite rightly and so you don't want to remove people's pillars that hold people up until you can replace until they're really healthy option until it's ready so that yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense. And do you feel like you're being listened to and this particular point of view or approach is gaining traction and gaining understanding? I think I think absolutely within the anti-trafficking sector. And I think yeah. that's where I've I think a lot of us have learned over the years. So it's it, I've been mostly sitting and observing and, uh, and learning from colleagues. And I think over time I've started to realize, well, what do we co- contribute here? Yeah. Um, and so that that that's been really well received I think and and also we've got a really good relationship with a lot of the anti-trafficking sector colleagues um Mm. and very mutual supportive um and not competitive I think as well something we're really actively trying to not be provide be another like an alternative to yeah people's other options but actually um I mean within with the uh, with home office policy that's that's a bigger issue I think that the, the narrative 
we're trying to draw light as many anti-trafficking and refugee sector colleagues are doing, draw light to the um, dog whistling, for example, where they say asylum seeker next to dangerous foreign criminal in the same sentence. And mm-hmm. that's training people's minds to assume that they're the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's been going on for a long time. It's very difficult because it, tra- it it creates a really toxic narrative about incredibly vulnerable people so for example the other day in A&E I saw a patient who was an asylum seeker who'd literally arrived the day before and she was she brought her children she's staying in a hotel and um put up by the home office and is an asylum seeker now so she has free recourse to public funds but was like are we in London um I, I I have diabetes I need medicine I don't know how to get it like what what do I do yeah. and so I had yeah. to teach she wasn't in A&E for anything other than had no idea what the NHS was what city she was in I was so shocked that she has diabetes and there's no she wasn't plumbed into a GP yeah like no one had told yeah. her what the language of our health service was like yeah and yeah what a GP is and what a hospital does and what a and e is for and all these things i literally had to take take her through through that and yeah yeah and you would expect that to be part of an initial needs assessment and an initial induction um because it is really critical that people are then plugged in straight away to avoid more chronic issues happening down the line right or an emergency diabetes presentation you know she you know it's really essential she has her insulin and things absolutely so that that shocked me really, but that was an, just a small example of of that hostility. That yeah. no, we're not helping you. We're trying to make it as horrible as possible so that and you'll it's leave. Difficult for you to access basic support and mm-hmm. care. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that is quite shocking. Um, thanks for sharing that, Rosie. Um, unfortunately, though, also it sounds it's all we have time for as well. I don't want mm-hmm. to. Um, it's, feels like a difficult note to end on I'm really sorry um but I wanted to thank you so much for spending your time and being on this podcast and sharing the information about Vita the network and the training as well it's been great to hear about your incredible work and I wish you luck with all of it thank you so much for having me I've really uh, yeah I've really enjoyed being here thank you pleasure having you um if people would like to find out more if they would like to do the training or join the network what's the best way for them to get in touch with you well, um, I think the best way would be to, you can email us at info at vita-training.com. Um, you can go on the training website, which is vita-training.com, or you can go on the network website, which is vita-network.com. And that gives a lot more information. You can sign up to our newsletters and you can look at all of the, the members of the, the team we have um, and, and find out a lot more about the sort of, yeah, the work we're doing. Brilliant. Okay, that's awesome. And I will include all of those um, addresses in the show notes. So if anybody wants to see them, then they're, they're there as well. Brilliant. Thanks again, Rosie. So nice to speak to you. Nice to speak to you too. Same. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks also to the listeners or the viewers of this podcast. Until the next episode, goodbye. You've been listening to Actions, Responses to Trafficking podcast. Music used in this episode is Inspiration. Written by Rayful Crux and sourced from freepd.com. Actions is produced and presented by Catherine Baldacchino.